shot to my local butcher, damn idiot. That's my effort for pun of the month. You'll recognise the voices of my next guests. Two Northern Irish broadcasting legends who have a huge passion for sport, including Ulster rugby. I'm of course talking about BBC NI sports presenter Stephen Watson and former Sky Sports, Premier Sports and now freelance commentator Mark Robson. I love talking to them and I'm sure you'll enjoy listening to them. The first thing for both of you, I suppose, is more than anyone almost, this lockdown will affect your careers in terms of what you're spending your days doing. I know Stephen has a pretty good setup at home there, but uh, what are you spending your, your days in lock-in doing at the minute? Uh, well, for, for me, it, um, it is complete isolation. So I now know what it feels like to be on the terraces at Carrick Rangers. Uh, very much. <laughs> <laughs> that's, for, that's for Paul Gilmore's benefit, the Sky Sports News reporter and great Jared fan. Um, so I, I was pretty unfortunate, really, because I was at Sky for a long time, as you know, and then lost my job at Sky when they lost all their rugby about 18 months ago. They lost the uh, Pro 14 on Europe pretty much at the same time. And then I was scratching about for about six months trying to build a freelance career. So I managed to do that. Uh, got onto Premier Sports doing Pro 14 and then got some Six Nations world feed. So I was doing the Six Nations for a second season. And then, of course, overnight with coronavirus, that foundation of freelance work that I'd built suddenly disappeared. And now I'm left with, uh, with nothing and no support from the government. So zero work and zero income at the moment but there's people in much worse positions i've got you know no mortgage on my house i've got a few savings so i'm actually feeling fairly fortunate but i'm just missing like everybody else is uh commentating this season on the rugby and and my final game was to be the six nations match in cardiff wales against scotland i was actually sitting in the airport about to fly from bristol to cardiff for the match and it came up on Sky News, breaking news, Wales, Scotland off. So that was that. I was about to go there. And I was I was going to go there to commentate with Rory Lawson. And a couple of days later, Rory came down with a very severe case of coronavirus. And we would have been uh, sharing a commentary position. So um, yeah. I suppose there was um, some good news there that I didn't get coronavirus. Bad news being that was the end of my <laughs> broadcasting career currently, as I know it. Uh, yeah, so I mean, I've I've been I've been slightly more fortunate than than, than Mark. Um, I I have continued to work during coronavirus, uh, albeit the studio facilities have basically been shipped into the conservatory um, in my house. I've got a live camera in here. I've got live radio facilities. Uh, I've got a green screen facility, um, which I'll have a virtual studio up and running uh, in the next week. So yes, there's been no sport action to report on, but we've still been trying to. Um, show how the sporting community has been coping or helping during during coronavirus. So working remotely has been difficult. Obviously, there's nobody in the office at all, but we have technically got around that. We've been producing good content for our website, for social media, and for BBC Newsline as well. But like Mark, it is very frustrating. Yes, the health and well-being of everyone is the most important thing, but uh, I'm dreadfully missing sporting action this week as we as we sit here now i'm actually meant to be at the masters in augusta and um, oh. so my, my heart my heart is breaking um, but you never know we might get there later in the year if it's rescheduled for for november yeah i just wish Stephen would, would sign off a news line with Stephen watson <laughs> from the expense of extension 
I'll have no sympathy yeah, about the Masters, by the way. I've never <laughs> been. Every time I see it, the Masters, the tears are tripping me. <laughs> yeah, I'm signing off Stephen Watson, BBC Newsline, at home at the moment. So uh, because that's that's exactly that's exactly where I am. But I think it does emphasize the point that you know we we are all working from home. But yeah. the ma- the Masters is. Uh, listen, it's the holy grail of, of sport. I always wanted to go there. I've been going every year since 2009. I know we're meant to be talking about rugby, um, but uh, listen, hopefully I'll, I'll get there. It's, it's a wonderful experience. It is, it is an unbelievable place. Um, and it was all, it was all geared up for uh, Ulster rugby fan Rory McIlroy to slip on the green jacket this year. Yeah. Well, you're, you before you're talking about rugby because like, like Ulster, Rory McIlroy can't win that trophy. Very true. I mean, people say, "Oh, I think this will be Rory's year to win the Masters," and I, I selfishly said this to him as well. I said, "Look, if you want to leave him for another ten years, that's fine. Because I'll have to keep coming back every year to see if you can do it." I won't tell you what he said to me, by the way. Anyway. Um, for both of you, obviously, look, we're all missing sport at the moment. Um, Ulster rugby perspective it's something I miss a lot as well as football and and other sports I think it's a really important thing socially psychologically mental health wise it's a it's a release for people you know you get to after the end of a hard week at work you get to go uh, and watch Ulster you get to go watch your favorite football team for both of you apart from it being your career what do you miss most about sport I I miss most the buzz of doing a commentary. I mean, there, there's nothing better for me than to, to, to sit anywhere and um, commentate on, on any sport, actually. But in particular, my greatest passion would be would be rugby, really, because um, that's what I played as a kid and through university and my younger life. Um, just to, to hear the presenter handing to me and knowing I'm about to commentate on hopefully a great game of rugby, whether it's Ireland, Ulster, and European rugby was always phenomenal. Um, so yeah, it's that buzz. I don't. I actually don't miss the, the, the research because obviously, you know, for, for people, <laughs> generally speaking, sport is a hobby. For me and Stephen, while we both are very passionate and love sport, it is work. And yeah. you know, I, of a weekend, like it's not the hardest thing in the world. I'm not down a coal mine in, in, in the Welsh Valleys. <laughs> but I would sit and watch between six and eight games of rugby and I would make copious notes on every single match that I watch because you never know when one element of that detail will be relevant in a game of rugby during a commentary that you can drop in. So all that research, yeah, it's, n- it's nice to get a break from that. But, it, but as the weeks pass, you know, and a Saturday comes, I'm thinking, you know, there's usually a match on at 2 o'clock, 4 o'clock, 6 o'clock, then a game on Sunday. And I am starting to suffer very serious sporting withdrawal symptoms. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm I'm exactly the same as Mark. It's it's the build up to a match as well, and all the preparation that goes into that. And I know I work more possibly on a, on a daily basis, like Mark used to present, obviously in, in, in UTV and many other places as well. Um, I, I miss that that buzz of preparing all of of the sport that day, the sporting news, breaking the stories, and the buzz of going in, into the studio. But I, I, and all, I also miss the camaraderie um, as well. I miss my colleagues. Did I ever think I'd say that? But yes, I, I, I you know, I, I miss my colleagues. It's fine talking to them on Zoom. It's fine talking to them on Skype. Um, and, and I miss meeting people. Sport for me 
one of the most important things is about the relationships you build, the friends that you make, um, and the people that you see. Yeah. And that, that, that is a thing that I miss. You know, yes, I, I, I don't work as often at Ulster Rugby because obviously we lost the, the rights to, 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 um, to Premier, but I still go to the Ulster Rugby matches. I'm still working at some of them. Um, you know, I miss the, the, the buzz of meeting my friends at the match, you know, meet, meeting them afterwards to discuss, to discuss the game. And it, now that there's no sport on television, I think it's just starting to kick in. You know, there's, there's no sport to go to. There's no sport to watch. And it is very, very frustrating. It, you realise how, how much, not, not that I needed it perhaps to, to know, but you realise how much sport plays a, plays a big part in your life. Yeah. There was one thing, Peter, that uh, Jackie Fullerton said to me one time. Never forget <laughs> it. We were actually queuing at Belfast International Airport to get onto a flight to, uh, to Dallas and then on to Guadalajara for the World Cup in 1986. And as Jackie said at the time, I had a massive suitcase and Jackie said to me, Mark, I see you brought all your cliches. As we're queuing to get our tickets, Mark, Jackie just tapped me on the shoulder and he says, Mark, never forget you're getting paid to do this. And I remember that to this day. Like, for example, the last game I did was uh, Murrayfield, Scotland against France. And I do stand in commentary and I take a deep breath and look around me and think, here we are in a jam-packed international rugby stadium for Six Nations game. And I am getting paid for the privilege of being here. Now, obviously, I'm nervous. I want to do a good professional job. But and you're sitting in the best seat in the house. And I'm sitting in the best seat in the house. I'm getting a check into my bank account. So it is, it is a phenomenal job. And, and I, any time I think about, and I do complain about it now and again, but whenever I think about <laughs> complaining about it, I do try to remind myself of that quote from Jack B that day in 1986. Yeah, yeah. yeah and I, I have to say, I remember that as well because Mark told me that story and I, I'm sure he won't mind me saying, but I wouldn't be doing the job that I'm doing today if it wasn't for the help that I got from Mark when I first joined. Um, UTV and he always made that point to me that this is a real privilege um, and, and and a wonderful opportunity that, that we have that we're getting paid to report on and and watch sport and um, my good colleague um, Gary McCutcheon and work who's a shoot editor who I've basically been on every trip that, and every sporting event that I've been to since 2002 and um, we, we always do talk about that and I, 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 I re recall that story to him quite often as well that Mark just told and anywhere we're going, I always, we always take a moment and say, like, just remember how lucky we are, you know, going to these sporting events. I mean, yeah. Mark, like myself, we've been able to travel all over the world to watch sport, report on sport, and it is, it is a real, real privilege. Oh, I'm sure. Not, not, not many, not, Peter, not many people know this, but I actually discovered Stephen Watson. <laughs> uh, his, his parents dumped him in a cot outside the steps of uh, <laughs> in a nappy on a waistcoat in 1984. I breastfed him. Pretty much. I mean this genuinely. He had so much talent, it was like fertilizing a Russian vine. He didn't have to do very much with it, except breastfeed for a little while. Found his way. Those, well, were, those were the glory, the glory days of the TV. They were, they were great days. The dream team. Um, so obviously, you're talking there about it being a, it's a dream job for both of you and for anyone listening. I'm sure reporting and broadcasting on sport would be a dream job for them as well. I want to hear a bit more about how you actually got into it. Was it something growing up you always thought, I want to, I want to commentate, or was it something you sort of fell into to later on? So if you could both tell me a wee bit about 
how you got into this job. It's obviously a brilliant job. It has its ups, ups and downs, of course. There's a lot more work than just rocking up to a game and starting to talk. Mine's pretty straightforward. Um, I was at Queen's University and I always loved sport. Um, I started writing some match reports for the Ireland Saturday night newspaper, Rugby Reports. Jim Stokes was a good friend of the family. And he got me some work writing, writing rugby reports in, the, in probably the Ulster League back then. It wasn't so much the All-Ireland League. And I then saw a, a job advertised for a sports reporter in UTV. My grandfather said, uh, why don't you apply for that job? Now, I was still at university, but I applied for the job simply for the experience of filling out an application form. I got an interview. Um, I ended up getting some work experience out of it. I only ever wanted to work behind the scenes. Um, I started working in the in the department with with Mark, um, logging all the football tapes, <laughs> um, which and then Mark would, would do the reports. And look, on, on one occasion, I think I was asked to present the sport at ten thirty. There used to be a ten thirty news, and somebody couldn't do it, and they said you can do it tonight. And I went really, and I was absolutely and utterly petrified. I'd never wanted to be in front of the camera, to be honest, and um, but I did it and enjoyed it. And from there, things just spiraled um and so did i always want to be a sports reporter probably not i probably didn't really know what i wanted to do yes journalism in some shape or form because i'd applied for a job in the belfast telegraph i got accepted onto their graduate trainee scheme but when i finished university and utv offered me um a graduate trainee contract for one year i turned down a full staff opportunity at the belfast telegraph to stay at um to stay at utv and that was simply because I loved sport. Sport was in my family. My dad used to coach the Ulster rugby team um, back, in the, back in the 70s. So sport was always in our house. And, and I just loved the environment. I love working with everyone in, in UTV. I enjoyed working with Mark. And I said he was really, really good to me. Um, and that's exactly how I, I fell into to my career. Well, I suppose for me, I mean, I was fanatical as a, as a kid. My father played for Ulster, played, played fullback in the same Ulster team as Jackie Kyle. Um, so I was groomed with a rugby ball around me, brought up with a rugby ball around me. So that, that was the main sport. And I got to university all, all through school. Whenever sport came on the television, I would turn the volume down and attempt to commentate on the sport on the team <laughs> very well. But got to university, did media studies, got through that, uh, always had the goal of getting into, into journalism or into television. And I got a voice test from the then head of BBC Sport, Joy Williams. And she said, okay, we'll take you on. No broadcasting in the, in, in the interim, but you will just write out the racing results on a bit of paper and hand them to George Hamilton, who was then presenting um, Sports Sound on Radio Ulster in the afternoon. And that's what I did for a few months. And um, I was still playing rugby at that, at that time quite a bit. Not all the time, because some Saturdays I was now working. But then one day Joy said to me, right, it's time for me to send you to a match. And you, you claim that rugby is your sport, so we'll send you to do a radio match report on a game, and they sent me to my own club. CIYMS were playing, who my dad played for and I played for. CIYMS were playing Carrick and the Ulster Senior Cup, Carrick being a junior side at that time. So I turned up at the game. There was a big crowd around the, the, the pitch in Belmont, and I had my notebook all very nervous and looking to do my report on the match. And the coach came over to me, and he said to me that, they were missing a player. <laughs> and in those days, there were no replacements. They only had 15 aside, And he taught me into playing. 
So I said, I'll have to play in the wing, got to avoid injury. So I actually played in the match and also reported on the game for the radio. Half time, I ran to this porta cabin, did my report. Conflict of interest, <laughs> serious conflict of interest there. <laughs> yeah, I know. Luckily, I didn't score. Uh, did my report on the phone at half time, did the same at full time. Even worse was to follow, because that was also uh, one of my first days on television, uh, producing, uh, presenting final score at five o'clock on the TV. So the game finished, we beat Carrick. I raced back to the TV studios and I presented final score with a shirt, tie, jacket, shorts, muddy knees and my CI rugby socks. So that was my introduction to radio and television all at the, the same time. <laughs> I'd also managed to play for my, my club as well. Now, Joy, Joy Williams, Joy Williams very, didn't very find out that story until I left BBC. I made sure that <laughs> nobody found out. <laughs> I, I, actually, I actually enjoyed broadcasting as well when I was, when I was growing up. And hospital radio was um, fantastic for me. I was a like a, a DJ, if you want to call it that, on, on hospital on hospital radio, broadcasting to nobody. But it was a it was a it was a great learning curve, and I ended up getting a a, a part time job in not it wasn't called City Beat then; it was called Belfast Community Radio (BCR) as it was before. And um, now now City Beat or now ninety six point whatever it's called now ninety six point seven. Um, so and I got a, a a classic rock show on there. I projected the breakfast show for a while, um, and so that helped with my my broadcasting as well. Yeah, so, so for both of you, it's a it's um, it's a case of practice and hard work. Uh, Stephen, you were saying about it's it's maybe not something which you had anticipated doing naturally. Uh, it, it's not something that you're drawn to to be in front of the camera, but it is just a case of practice. I'm sure for Mark as well, your commentary gets better over time, and it's not something. Do you sit? Do you sit and? Uh, write down phrases that 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 you want to use, and uh, you're obviously known for for sort of puns and things like that, and uh, providing a bit of a bit of charisma in your commentary. Is that something that you've worked really hard to improve on, and and bring something a wee bit different both to to, to broadcasting and commentary? Well, uh, yes, I I do. I mean, I learned that very early on um, in very formative days. I was over doing a doing a game in Murrayfield, Scotland against Italy. Not quite sure why I was doing Scotland against Italy because it was pre-Six Nations, some November game or whatever, but there was a friendly match of some sort. And Bill McLaren was also commentating on the game. I'd never met him, but of course he was my hero and a legend. And we're watching Italy train and I sidled down the touchline. I was determined to have a word with him. Very nervous even speaking to the great man. And eventually summoned up the courage to say to to Bill McLaren, Bill, can you give me any advice to a young commentator? And he just turned to me and he said, your greatest challenge, Mark, is to find different ways to describe the same thing. And whenever you think about it, rugby in particular is very much a phase game. It is, it is rinse and repeat a lot of the time, uh, line out scrum or whatever. And so, so for that day on, and Peter Jones said the same thing to me, and, and most of the great commentators do this too. I know Nick Mullins would do it. Um, John Murray and, and Miles Harris and maybe to a slightly lesser extent. It's not that so much that you write phrases down, but you have phrases in your head. I've got phrases in my head that I want to use in a game of rugby that have been there for 10 years. And I've never used them because it has to, for me, in some respects, fit the moment. So that, that, that's, that's the difficult bit. It's like having a, a selection box in your brain and it's finding the right phrase. Whenever there's the frenzy of a try being scored, 
just being able to, you know, that Rolodex in your head, being able to pick out the right phrase to fit the moment. And that's where McLaren was sensationally good, and many other commentators are very, very good. Because for me, anybody can say A to B to C to D, and a brilliant drive by Trimble in the corner, that, that's, that's dead easy. Adding a bit of a bit of colour to it and a few adjectives here and there and, and crafting a phrase in in under the adrenaline fueled moment of, of commentary. That, that's the very difficult thing, and that's what the very best commentators, the one that I respect the most, are able to do. Yeah. Yeah, I mean I, I like Mark, I met Bill McLaren as well. My first international commentary that I ever did was Ireland against England at Twickenham. And I met Bill McLaren, and like Mark, I was also very nervous. And I, I, I asked him for, you know, could you, give, could you give some advice to somebody who's doing their first international commentary? And he simply said to me, have you done your homework? Um, and also give me a little humbug sweet out of his pocket. He carried a, a box, of, box of sweets in his pocket. Like right, balls. Little humbugs. That's right, yeah, the balls. So I said, yes, I have done my homework. And he said, he said well, look, I'll tell you this story. When I was your age... Um, I went to see a pro television program presented by Richard Dimbleby, David Dimbleby's father. And the program only lasted, say, 15 minutes. But over his desk, he had pages and pages and pages of notes. And I went and asked him afterwards. And I said, why do you have so many notes on your desk? He said, son, you're better looking at it than looking for it. And I always remember that. And I would never go and do a commentary or present a program without having done at least three times the amount of research that you probably need to do because you can get caught if you on a live television program if you think you've got a five minute build up so you only do a little bit of research to get you through suddenly when the kickoff's delayed and you've got 30 minutes to fill then then you need to have a lot of information at your finger at your fingertips so research for me is always key yeah well so, I, I i do the same peter i'm absolutely obsessed by research and homework and that was one of the things when Stephen joined utv back in the the 90s that, that, that impressed me about Steve and I, I, I could see straight away that he had a, he had a massive enthusiasm and uh, he was like a piece of blotting paper in terms of his ability <laughs> to absorb knowledge and his, and his determination to absorb knowledge and his, his love of sport so I, I could see that passion right from day one I like, I like to think it was a, the kind of passion that existed in me as well yeah, absolutely. No, uh, clearly, clearly, it's it's all about preparation, and you, you both sort of idolise Bill McLaren. If you look around the current sporting landscape now, and we look at the way different sports are covered, is there any one that you look at in terms of broadcaster or analyst that you look at and go, "He's he's really good. They're doing the right thing there." This is maybe a strange choice, but obviously, a lot of my um, work revolves around uh, sports news reporting as opposed to working at sporting, you know, sporting events or big live outside broadcasts, which we do do as well. But from, from day to day, a lot of my work is sports reporting. And the one person who I always admired that did that very well was actually probably a news reporter as opposed to a sports reporter who was Bill Neely, mm -hmm. um, who reported for ITN. I mean, an absolutely brilliant, he just packages a story absolutely brilliantly and tells the story brilliantly. Um, and I always admired his his work. I have to say, um, and I always enjoyed doing what he was doing. From that point, from that point of of view. Yeah, well, gosh, there's so many. I mean, I always like Rob Bonnet. You must have worked with as well at the BBC. Yes, absolutely. I actually was on his program recently. He's a program right. Radio Four, and he interviewed me. It was great. Yeah, it was great to be on that program. He was super. But strangely, you know, it's 
I know I've worked in sport all my life, and I do admire a lot of commentators there. I always, I always love Peter Alice for his ability to, you know, again, to get that one liner. Is that that for me? It's lateral thinking, tangential thinking, and there was no greater master of that than Peter Alice. And I always, I used to tune into the golf to listen to Peter Alice when he was paired with Ken Brown because those oh, two. Brilliant. I was lucky enough to commentate with Ken on. The, I worked on the European Tour for a number of years, commentating on the the, the world feed there. And, and Ken Brown was very often my partner, and he's still a very close friend to this day. And me and Ken commentating was actually carnage because there, <laughs> there was one man in the world who could make me corpse. It was Ken Brown, and he used to set out in commentary determined to make me giggle, and he, he never failed to achieve it. But I think his his commentaries are superb. And also, I'm sure you've watched them, Ken. His Ken on the course stuff at the Super. Masters, when he rolls a few balls around and starts chatting and draws his pictures and gets his ducks out and whatever else he's using. The, 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 those Ken on the course vignettes are just absolute. You know, they're single takes usually. They're absolute yes. masterpieces, Stephen. Masterpieces. Oh, they're brilliant. And he's, he's actually doing some stuff on social media this week, even though the Masters is not on. I mean, the one person when I was um, growing up, uh, he's still presenting to this day, but he was a consummate professional as Steve Ryder. I thought he was a, a wonderful sports presenter. And obviously, Des Lynham back in the, the day mm -hmm. as well. I actually saw some some stuff just recently posted on social media of Des Lynham presenting. I always used to you know watch him. He was so laid back, never looked like he was under pressure. And Mark will know having, you know, it's obviously we've sat in the same seat and presented programs, high pressure programs. They always looked unflappable. And yeah. I always watched Mark when he was presenting, he looked unflappable. And that's the way I try and model myself as well, that even if everything, all hell is breaking loose, that the viewer at home doesn't know this and you have to try and guide them through the program and make them all feel part of it as, as, as well. You know, the program is not, it's not about us presenting the program. It's about everyone watching the program at home and feeling part of the, the broadcast, I think. Yeah. I, no, we, we, were, we were lucky, and I'm, I'm a wee bit older than Stephen, but <laughs> I remember them too, you know, to, to work with some of the absolute legends of the of the broadcasting business, like Steve Ryder and Des Lynham, he mentions David Coleman. I was lucky enough to work with him. Uh, Reg Gutteridge, one of the, the great commentators, Harry Carpenter, great boxing commentator. So just to, to be around people like that, because in those days, the early days in the BBC, especially when Barry McGuigan was, was fighting, um, those great network presenters, Lionel would come over to present, Ryder would come over to present, Harry Carpenter yeah. would come over to commentate. So we, we were in amongst them on a regular basis, and you learned so much just by being around their craft yeah. and picking up tips here and there. I mean, to, to, to share a, you know, a, a drink after a fight with Harry Carpenter and Des Lynham sitting at the same table, like it was just Nirvana. You tried, to, you tried to show that you weren't in complete and utter total awe. Yeah. Uh, they were incredible days. And, and, and also, and this shows the measure of the man as well. I remember when I was at UTV um, working on some boxing and afterwards, I actually got a letter from Reg Gutteridge to say what a good job I had done. And I thought, that is unbelievable. Mm -hmm. Reg Gutteridge has written me a note. And I thought, that's just incredible. You know, he had absolutely mm -hmm. no need to do that. But it was, I was actually very inspiring when, when, when you got something like that. And I met Des Lynham as well. At a, it was at a, a Royal Television Society um, award ceremony in London. And I'd, I'd been fortunate enough to be nominated you know, for a regional presenter. And it had shown some clips on the screen of me presenting stuff. And Des Lining came up to me afterwards 
and said, I thought what you did there was very impressive. And like, I was like, this is Des Lynham telling me he thought it was good. You know, I was just in awe of it. It was, it was, it was brilliant. Yeah, they were, yeah. It, to be in their company was just incredible. Oh, Des, Des is a very, very cool man. Uh, Jackie Fullerton as well, very cool man. And it, there's something about that looking very at ease on screen. But I'm sure a lot of prep goes in behind the scenes, as you're both talking about. Uh, <laughs> the amount of research that goes in so it looks effortless. But maybe you're seeing the tip of the iceberg there. And, uh, and underneath all of that is an enormous amount of work and research that goes into it. So um, no, it's, it's interesting to hear how supportive as well those guys were to you at the outset. And what I was going to ask about, bit about is talk specifically about rugby I suppose rugby is one of those games which isn't probably that accessible to the general public in some ways Uh, it can be harder to sit down uh, with no background knowledge and and sit and watch a game of rugby and understand what's happening in terms of making it a more accessible sport well number one do do you agree with that but also in terms of making it more accessible how can how can we, as the rugby community and, and as broadcasters yourselves, make it more accessible and appealing to the masses? Hmm. It's, it's uh-huh. difficult. Yeah, yes, I mean the, the some of the laws are remarkably complicated at times, but I think it shows the the, the popularity of rugby, especially when the Six Nations comes around, that you can still enjoy rugby without you know necessarily having to understand all the intricate laws i mean look 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 how many families sit down and watch rugby you know boys and girls go and watch ulster rugby irish rugby and they don't necessarily understand all of the scrummaging you know what's going on in the scrums or the problems in the lineouts but they 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 do enjoy watching tries they enjoy watching the atmosphere at games so look there are things happening in rugby sometimes i still don't understand i go i have no idea why that why the referee gave that even though you know i'm meant to know all the laws inside out um, so yes, it can be complicated at times, but I think if they keep the game fast moving and have less set piece, I think that makes it more exciting and more accessible to, to everyone. I don't know if you agree or not, Mark. Well, I, I, I know what I certainly try to do in commentary is I have to know all the details. So I, I do read the law book. I try to keep up with all the directives, but I don't drill into the detail. But it's only whenever I need to know the detail, I know I know the detail that I use it. Um, because to me, it is about making it accessible. So whenever I'm commentating on a game of rugby, I'm, I'm simply trying to make it an, an enjoyable experience for anybody who's watching the game. Um, to develop um, some bonhomie and badinage with the guys beside me, whether it's Stephen Ferris or Andrew Trimble or whoever it might be, Ian Evans, who I commentated with for years. So you're just and trying people to enjoy that. People enjoy that yeah. bit of cra- they, they enjoy the bit of crack, and I think Mark as well that if they don't understand what's happening when they're watching, as long as the commentator does and the, and the analyst does and they can explain it in kind of layman's terms, I think that makes it, you know, it, it makes it very accessible and they understand. It's explaining the detail when you have to explain the detail and then, then simply trying to make it a very enjoyable experience for, for anybody watching. I always try when I'm commentating to imagine the person watching it sitting on their sofa at home and what they want to get from that experience. Yeah, yeah, and it does. It does add so much. Uh, I've heard it said that uh, sort of a, a good commentator can make a decent game good and a great game amazing. Do you know? I think um, there are particular lines which which commentators come out with at the right moment. And you're saying, Mark, about you have those stored in your head, and maybe phrases, turns of phrases that you're going to use at a particular moment. 
this is a tough question probably, but is there a particular favorite line of commentary that, that you've heard <laughs> where you've gone, he's nailed it there. That, that is brilliant. That is just the perfect bit of commentary for that moment. Uh, Look, there's dozens and dozens and dozens. The, the, the one that I, that just jumps into my mind because you've asked me is um, Miles Harrison. I had a lot of respect for it was my rival. If you like at Sky, he was the number one rugby commentator there. And I suppose I was the number two, but Miles had this great ability that, the bigger the game, the better his commentary. And that, that's a great <laughs> skill. So Lions Test matches would have terrified me. They probably terrified him, but he produced great commentary in Lions Test. When Brian O'Driscoll scored that famous try against Australia, it was a 0-1, maybe, I can't remember. Uh, and he said, welcome to Fantasyland, as, as O'Driscoll <laughs> danced through the defence underneath the post. I mean, to come out, I'm sure he had that line somewhere, maybe for years, as I was saying to you yeah. before in his head. But to come out with that line at that moment, knowing that for eternity that try is going to be replayed yeah. and for eternity whatever he said at that moment is going to be replayed that is yeah. that is one of many lines that i admire yeah what about you Stephen? <laughs> i mean there are many of bill mclaren's lines that i can't even remember off the top of my head now to be honest with you but he had the ability to say things um, and describe them in, in a way that nobody nobody else could. I mean, I've got some great Pullman balls I could, I could share with you now, but I don't know whether they'd be clean enough for, for, your, for your podcast. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but yeah, look, off the top of my head, I can't remember. There's not one that really jumped, yeah. that jump, that jumps out. Um, but if you listen back to to many of the great the great rugby commentators, um, you know, and he, listen, look, listen to, to Murray Walker in, in, in Formula One. And you'll come up with some 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 great lines of commentary there as well. But as Mark said, it's the I think it's the ability not just to to to, to talk about what exactly is happening. It's about what you can describe to make the occasion better. Yeah. Because you know the commentator is so much part of the sporting occasion, and yeah. um, to, to make the person watching at home feel feel part of it. Yeah, it makes it. It does make a huge difference. Just that that line of commentary to to get across the importance of what has just happened. Now, as well as working at the games, you've both been fans of Ulster rugby over the years. What are your favourite rugby memories? Well, a game I actually requested was Ulster against Saracens, the famous game in 2014, the quarter final, when Jared Payne was uh, sent off in the fifth mm. minute. In my view, rightly sent off. I think if Jared hadn't hit Alex Payne, he'd still be running to this very day. He would have probably hit Dublin by now. Um, but that, that game sticks out. But before the before the match, for example, I was down in the tunnel. Jared Payne was, was white as a sheet. You could tell that he was over emotional for that game. And Jared Payne just got yeah, emotional, as you know. Very very cool dude. And you mm. know, sense, geez, I hope Jared calms down very quickly at the start of this game. I actually said at the Iron Evans before a commentary. I said I think the Ulster guys might be overhyped here. And, and then of course we had the famous incident in, in, in the fifth minute. But it was the way Ulster played. 18,000 in a new stadium, remember, the King's mm. not long been opened. Uh, we lost Rory Best. He had to go off. Pinar shouldn't have started. He had a bad shoulder. He lasted 50 minutes. Don't know how. Trimble got concussed. He had to go off as well. Um, Herring came on. It was carnage on the field with injuries, red card. And yet Ulster still could have won that match. Ashton scored two tries. Not many people know this, but Chris Ashton was actually chased up the tunnel after that match by an Ulster fan. Oh, really? Because he had the temerity to do the Ash, Ash 
in front of the Ulster. <laughs> you should never have. Don't do that in Belfast, Chris. Yes, <laughs> up the tunnel. But you know, going back to that match as well. You know, at the end of the game, we were losing 17-15, and we went through 30 phases, close to their line. Could easily have, have won that match. And the reason why I remember that defeat with such pain is. I really think, pain, there we go again, another pun. I really think that was the year when Ulster had a chance of winning the, the Heineken Cup. Uh, mm. Final would have been Clermont in Dublin, and then Toulon did eventually win it. But I, do, I didn't think that was the best Toulon side that, that won the hat trick. And Ulster at that stage, they had, they had a magnificent team. You know, we had Pienaar, we had Johan Muller, John Afoa, the two great wings, Bowen Trimble, Jared Payne at fullback. And, that that was just Ulster's moment, and, and that yeah. that red card in the fifth minute, I, I will take that to my grave. That red card, because I just thought in one split second that chance to win the Heineken yeah. Cup, that real chance yeah. to dominate the Heineken Cup, had gone because after that the squad began to break up. The yeah. other moment that sticks out, and I was commentating on the match for Satanta, was Ulster's last trophy, and it was the uh, Magnus League in those days. David Humphreys. That was there. Were you there? Dropped a yeah, goal to Ospreys. Um, the ball hit the, 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 the post and then the crossbar and dropped over. That's right. That's correctly. right. Yeah. What I remember most, it's funny when little things stick out when you're commentating. What I remember most is that was before TMOs. Gavin Henson was standing behind the post. And because it was a drop goal, there were no touch judges behind the post. And Henson <laughs> put his finger up to signal that the ball had gone over the bar. <laughs> or else nobody would have known yeah. whether it had gone over the bar or not. I always thought that that said an awful lot about Gavin Henson um, because it was, a, it was a shootout in that game and that was Ulster's last trophy. I was lucky enough to be commentating on it and I never thought I'd be waiting to 2020 to see some more silverware coming Ulster's way. Yeah. No, yeah. I, I remember that game as well because I, I actually went to the post-match party after that game. Which was uh, which you was go good to fun as well, <laughs> and I, I I got I actually got a brilliant uh, picture um, taken with my dad with the trophy after that game. That's why it's, it's, it hangs up in my office. That's why I remember that well. But it was it was a great it was a, that that was a, that was a great that was a great game. I have a I was going to have that, that was one of my highlights, but I've probably got oh, two or three others. Obviously, Ulster in '99, that whole campaign, you know, the semi-final. Uh, the the try that David Humphrey scored under the post when the when the whole scaffolding was shaking and the, and the BBC commentary box was 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 brilliant. Obviously the '99 final. I have a great memory in the '80s when Ian Bruno Brown playing for 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 Ulster kicked a a touchline conversion to win the interprovincial championship, which was you know sensational back in the back in the day. And probably one of my favourite memories is one of my very first Ulster games. It's probably my first Ulster game. Uh, it was 1978 when I was very young. Um, my dad was coaching Ulster at the time. They played the All Blacks, Ulster against the All Blacks in 1978. And I remember run, being allowed out of school to go and watch the match and running onto the pitch to try and get lots of autographs with the New Zealand players. That was a, that I've still got the, pro, the programme to this day. Actually, that was, a, that was a great memory for me. Yeah. No, yeah I suppose another one, Peter, was, was standing on the touchline before I was broadcasting. When Ulster beat Australia and Philip Rainey kicked the oh what a game yeah, was great. the touchline and the pouring rain and the mud, that was another one that was pre-broadcasting days. Yeah, oh there are so many and uh, these moments mean so much to me as well and and even you know a big part of watching Ulster for me is is going along with my dad. I've been going the game since I was about six years old with my dad and you do bond over these things and and reminisce about 
about moments like that. Another question from a listener is, who is your all-time favourite Ulster rugby player? If you, could, if, you, if you had to choose. <laughs> I know you probably don't want mm. to offend anyone. I'll give you the most notorious. I'll give you the most notorious. <laughs> yeah. Neil Best. Yeah. Without, without a doubt. Uh, can, I, can I tell you a very quick Neil Best story? Oh, absolutely. Right. So we go to the Churchill Cup in Denver in 2009, <laughs> same time as the Lions Tour. Neil Best, the craziest man in the universe, bar none. Declan Kidney's coaching the Ireland A team at the Churchill Cup and decides to try and keep Bestie calm. He'll make him captain. Terrible error of judgment. <laughs> Actually, it wasn't. He, he did really well. but Because he, he tried to stop Bestie from going on the loose. It didn't work. He was climbing out of the hotel balcony and down the down the drain pipes to get into the, the nightclubs and bars. And, <laughs> I actually believe that. That's true. You know, it's absolutely true. He actually was climbing out of the hotel. Uh, the captain. So anyway, it came to the final. and We played England A at Dick's Sporting Goods Park in Denver. Bestie's the captain. I'm commentating with Tony Diprose, former England number eight. And I couldn't resist having a few digs at Bestie because he, he was a good, he still is a good friend. Now, now uh, living in Singapore, of course, and uh, he, has, he uh, invented Singapore Irish rugby team out there. I'm sure you know that. Anyway, so I'm having a few wee digs in comedy and I've given him a bit of stick. <laughs> and Ireland win. So Bestie's in great form. Ireland are celebrating. We all went to this massive big bar in downtown Denver to celebrate. All the teams were there. All the press were there, reporters, commentators. Bestie now, of course, is pissed. And word has got back to Bestie that young Robson, who has taken the piss out of him a little bit, <laughs> gently, gently, in commentary. So I'm standing having a nice pint with Kane Healy and Tony Buckley, two very friendly props. In fact, they're being overly friendly. I can't work out why. The next thing I know, Healy and Buckley have me by one elbow <laughs> each, and I'm pulled onto my back onto the floor. Bestie's over the top of me. He sticks his tongue into my mouth, and deep throats me with a two and a half minute long French kiss. I get up, gagging, retching, the boys are wet themselves. Isaac Boss, the scrum half, ex-Ulsterman, drifts over and he says, Robbo, it's actually worse than you think. He pissed into a pint glass before he did that. No. No. Yes. Now that is comfortably comfortably the worst thing that has ever happened to me connected <laughs> to ulster rugby or an ulster man or your life he pretty much I mean, this best best he kidnapped my brother once That's he kidnapped right. him. my brother's yeah. a tennis coach in Lloyd. he kidnapped him he had him tied up behind a sofa and he phoned me and he said, unless you pay a ransom, I'm going to kill your brother. <laughs> I said, I said, I said, Bestie, kill him. I don't like him. <laughs> That's amazing. That's amazing. Oh, Bestie, what a man. I'll go for Neil Best. Neil Best yeah. for, for the stories. I, yeah. oh, listen, I, I, could, I, could, I could pick a load of, 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 of Ulster players. A lot of them have meant a lot to me down through the years. Uh, obviously, through my uh, connections with Malone Rugby Club um, as well. But if I was going to pick one or maybe two, they'd probably both be back row forwards. One would be Willie Duncan, who played for Malone, who was a character, a hard man, uh, who went on to play for Ireland as well. Um, what, what a player, what a great man, Willie Duncan. Good friends with his brother, Stuart, as well. Um, and another 
back row forward would be Stephen Ferris, who's a good mm. pal of mine now. I just loved watching Stephen Ferris play rugby, and it was yeah. so cruel that his career was was cut so short. Um, because he was a, a, an immense, an immense player. I know, I know Mark knows Stephen well too. So, so those, those, those would be my players. I'll maybe pick three: the Duncan brothers and Stephen Ferris. Good can choice. I, can I just elaborate on that very, very quickly? I was in, I was in the Morns with Fez a few weeks ago before the lockdown. We've been to the Morns a couple of times, and I just said to him, we're just walking across a couple of hills, and I just turned to him and said, Fez, imagine the career you would have had if you'd had Jamie Heaslip's injury profile. Can you imagine? Yeah, absolutely. Remember Jamie, he was the Wolverine, never got injured, Wolverine. Yeah. Love. The other thing is, I once wore Willie Duncan's underpants on a bus, <laughs> on a bus back from Black Rock. Ian Brown decided that we, we would have a ballot. So we all had to strip naked. We all had to put our underpants into a big black bin bag. And then he did a ballot. And I, I was drawn out <laughs> Willie Duncan's underpants, which had skid marks. Skid marks. <laughs> I had to wear Willie's <laughs> underpants all the way from Dublin up to Belfast <laughs> and nothing else. Again, these are the days a long time ago back in the 80s when the press and the, the players Correct. all mingled together. And another, Stuart Duncan you mentioned there, I was hosting an event on Royal Avenue one day with, with Jeff Capes, who at that time held the British uh, brick holding, or world brick holding championships. And Stuart was in, in the crowd, Royal Avenue. Stewie came up and almost beat Jeff Capes for the world record of cumulative brick holding uh, between your wingspan. Because Stewie had this massive wingspan. Uh, so great, great, all great characters. That's the point I'm making. All great men, great characters. Great characters. And uh, th those kind of stories, professional sport has ruined that now. Yeah. You don't get as much access to the, to the players. Yes, occasionally we do. And you, you, yes, you become friendly with them and you, you're able to socialise a bit with them. But... Uh, back in the day, some some of those some of those stories. W Willie Duncan is. I know, looking at me, I don't I don't look as if I I uh, I should be able to do this. But back in the day, I used to be able to drink a pint of Guinness remarkably fast, like in in under three seconds, probably about two and a half seconds. Impressive. And Willie Duncan's the only man who's ever beaten me. I don't I don't I don't drink anymore. Obviously, he's just had a kidney transplant. Um, but Willie Dunk is the only man who ever beat me at Malone. I I, I made the silly mistake of taking him on one day. There's too much drink taken, so, so, so there you go. So that's it. A lot of these things can't happen anymore because of the advent of yeah. camera phones um, and media sort of being everywhere, and that relationship has changed a lot over, over the years. Um, but I love those stories. That's so good. Uh, some real characters, and I think for me as well, Fez is, is a hard man to look past for being the uh, just for a just remarkable, remarkable player, one of one of a kind. So completely, completely on board with that. The other so question. He's also, he's also an incredibly genuine individual. He, 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 I have to say, he is. He's an incredibly yeah. genuine person. Very, very honest. Um, he's a good friend, and I have admired him actually the way that he has finished his rugby career and moved into the, uh, another different career now. And yeah. he also, like Mark does. He would. Uh, he's probably rubbed off on Stephen as well. He does a remarkable amount of homework as well. He likes yeah. to be prepared, and and he, and he does a very very good job. I have to say. Yeah, yeah, and it's good to see there's guys like Andrew Trimble now doing their their podcast, The Bass and Andrew. Uh, do you guys listen to that yeah. as well? Yeah, well, yeah, I do. Yeah, he started off deciding he would give me a lot of abuse on it, so uh, <laughs> I had to take a stick because the, the Monster Men wouldn't be too fond of an Ulsterman commentating on Monster matches. 
they always had it. They always had it in for me. So Bar Barry started off giving me a bit of stick, and, and Trimby used to defend me, which was very, very kind of him. <laughs> yeah, I, I, you, 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 are, you are right about the, the, the Monster Men definitely not liking um, an Ulsterman commentating because um, during the days when Ronan O'Gara was, was battling it out with, with David Humphreys for the number 10 shirt, Ronan O'Gara always used to call me, ah, here's BBC Humphreys coming along. So we <laughs> we, we felt we backed, it, we, backed our, we backed our own man. <laughs> now, I have a listener question. This one is from Leslie Crimble. Which Northern Ireland sports person are you most proud of and why? Joey Dunlop. Yeah, Joey Dunlop that was going to be my answer too. Joey Dunlop was going to be my answer too. Uh, yeah. I have to say, M M Mark and I have actually been chatting about Joey Dunlop in the last, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, in, in, in the last couple of days. What a man. Um, what, a, what a character. They just will never make somebody like Joey Dunlop ever again. Mark and I were very, very fortunate to spend quite a lot of time with, with, with Joey Dunlop. Um, he obviously wasn't too fond of the media, but we, we both had a, had a great relationship with him and with his family. He got to spend a lot of time with them. I'm still very, very friendly with, with his family and, and, and I see his, his kids, um, who are now not really kids anymore. <laughs> they're, they're, all, they're, all, they're all still growing up, but um, Joey Dunlop was a remarkable man, talented at what he did on a bike um, and generous um, what he did away from sport um, as well. So. Remarkably, remarkably humble man. Yeah. Well, I, I know Stephen's very, very close to the family, and you know, I, I've sort of drifted away from the family. But I wasn't certainly never as close as Stephen was because you were virtually like another son, I think, to Linda, <laughs> and probably still still are. But you know, me and Stephen, we, we carried the coffin for a short, short distance. Yeah. You know, we got quite close to Joey, and we we were actually reminiscing the other day. Great story. You you knew you were accepted by Joey. We we had covered the Adam and TT together one year, and. We were down doing the Southern 100, the wee races after the Isle of Man TT, and we were talking to Joey behind his, behind uh, his bikes, and he just turned to us and he says, "Boys, follow the van." And <laughs> I'm quite sure what that meant, but we got into our hire car and we we followed Joey's van, and just down these windy roads in the Isle of Man to this wee harbour in the middle of nowhere, this little port, and there was a wee bar there and a pool table. And we got smashed with Joey while Joey regaled and told stories and told us exactly how he was able to beat Philip McCallum on a regular basis. Yeah, that's right. And uh, some of the inside stories and secrets. And then after that, we went back to his, his we, uh, we, um, rental house and we had to go through this forest in the pitch black, all of us pissed. Joey knew the way through the forest. <laughs> and on purpose, he took us through this muddy forest and giggled the whole way and destroyed us. And I suppose the point of that was we then knew we were kind of accepted by the great. That's Joey. right. So that That's was, right. That was, for me, that was a wonderful moment. I know for, for Stephen as well, that, that you, you could kind of call Joey a friend. And, uh, you know, yeah. Joey wasn't the easiest guy to get, get inside the head of because he was a, a very insular character until you, you, you got to know him a little bit better. So I just felt so honored to, to, to know Joey, be able to cover some of his career. Uh, and I remember exactly where I was the, the day that he died. It was July the 2nd, 2000 in Estonia. And I was presenting that day the uh, British Superbikes Championships from Silverstone. And it came up on a, on a TV screen somewhere in the, in the paddock. Um, it was on Grandstand, I remember Steve Ryder was presenting. And just that graphic, Joey Dunlop, it just had the, the sound was turned down, just had the dates. And I just knew when I saw the dates that, that Joey was dead. And, I had to go on and present the program that day, which I find incredibly difficult. I mean, through yeah. the program, I kept on 
breaking down into tears. That was certainly one of the worst days yeah. of my sporting career, if not the worst day of my sporting yeah. career. Yeah, mine too. I'm, yeah. Mine, mine too. I have to say, I, I, I've also been remarkably proud of what a lot of our more current sports um, men are are doing. Um, Jonathan Ray, for example, has you know replicated Joey's five world titles. He's a fantastic ambassador for for Northern Ireland. And what our major winning golfers ha- have done over the last yeah. decade has been truly inspirational. I've been very fortunate um, to to be there for for all of their the successes. Um, covered a lot of them, um, made documentaries with them, so felt felt as if I've been in the middle of it, and um, which been very very lucky. But what Rory McIlroy, Graham McDowell, and Darren Clark yeah. have done, and um, bringing pride to Northern Ireland and winning those major trophies, and they're, they're like walking advertising boards for this yeah. place, you know, for, for yeah. Northern Ireland. What what they have done for the place, I think, has been has been incredible. Yeah, I think I, I think that's that's probably the only sort of part of Stephen's career that I've been envious of. Is uh, <laughs> maybe maybe there's more than that part of it, but just just the fact that Stephen was right in in the middle of that great era, which continues to this day, of McIlroy, yeah. Darren Clark, and Graham McDowell winning major championships in the documentaries you did. I I would be sitting at home going, "Geez, Stephen, I wish I was there. I wish I was there." <laughs> Game with Jonathan Ray. Because this has been a real golden period, yeah. and not not just golf, but but many sports. Yeah. And, and Steve, yeah. you've been incredibly lucky to be to be almost the hub of that. Because a lot of those stories have actually worked. Work. You've been lucky enough to have those stories from a journalist's point of view work around you. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. I mean, to to be fortunate enough to be making documentaries with with our golfers, um, have, building up good relationships with them to to get them to trust us to to be able to tell their stories. Uh, was you know, honestly some of the most remarkable things that I, I've been involved in. To be able to to fly home after they win their major titles um, and be with them and see the journey that they experience on the way home and to be able to then you know tell those stories to let everybody else see them as well. I mean, one of the most remarkable sporting moments that I, that I ever had the privilege of witnessing was when Darren Clark, Brought the Clara jug back to and presented it to his two boys in the house after everything he'd been through, um, you know his wife Heather dying of, of breast cancer and then fulfilling his his dream of winning the Open. Yes, with a little bit too much drink involved on the way home, but so what? He he had just achieved you know the ultimate goal, and to see the emotion of, of him handing the Clara jug to the two boys was you know a moment I will will never forget. And he yeah. he allowed us to film it because he wanted it recorded. And I think he wanted people to, to see exactly what it, what it meant to him. So those were those were very special moments too. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're what, is super- about our, what is it about our great sports fan and, and, and drink? Like Alex, <laughs> Alex Higgins, Joey DeLop, George Best, Darren, <laughs> the list goes on. <laughs> Mark Robson. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. It's 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 funny that, but uh, I think Northern Ireland uh, does punch above its weight in terms of creating sporting legends. And uh, for a country with such a small population, you know, our, our wee country has produced a a huge number of global superstars. And I think it, it just some of the names we're mentioning there just uh, helps helps remind us, uh, I'm sure, of the enormous amount of of good that sport has done for Northern Ireland uh, in uniting people and and, and putting uh, Northern Ireland on a global stage as well. So, no, it's good to, good to talk about that and, and be remind ourselves of these positive things in, in what is quite a difficult time for us at, at the minute. And just returning to, to Ulster Rugby, one of the listeners was asking about what you've thought of the season 
uh, just passed. Um, and I suppose that links into the transitional period that Ulster have gone through. And what you think of what has happened so far under Dan McFarland since he has joined Ulster. He's obviously changed the atmosphere. I think I'm sure you'll agree the atmosphere around Ulster Rugby is different now. We went through a very, very difficult dark patch about two seasons ago, but the atmosphere has changed. So number one, what do you think of the how Ulster have gone this season? But also, what are your expectations for Ulster in the next few seasons? I go. Yeah, you go, Mark. Uh, it's nothing short of remarkable from the Anas Aribolis, um a couple of years ago. We, we all know about that. Don't have to go into any more detail. Dan McFarland, got to remember as well that his arrival was delayed by the Scottish Rugby Union. So he came to it late. He immediately tried to semi-reinvent or, or, or evolve the way Ulster played. This high-tempo game, fight for every inch. We overachieved massively that first season under Dan McFarland. You, you, new, new coaching staff. Dwayne Peel had done very little attack coach work at Bristol mm-hmm. in, in his um, in his previous job. Uh, Jared Payne had very little experience as a defence coach. Dan McFarland's first job as a head coach, though he's worked as, as an assistant at Connaught and, and Scotland under Gregor Townsend in Glasgow as well. So if you think about it, Ulster won five of their six European games in the first season under Dan McFarland. They, they reached the playoffs and the semi-finals of the Pro 14. Two knockout games in the first season, re- revolutionising really their style because they totally tried to change it. And, and it worked to, to a great extent. And then this season, I, th- I felt they were following that up again, right on track. Winning five from I mean, winning five from six in Europe, it, it's an astonishing achievement. Very few teams, Leinster, r- rarely achieve that whenever they're winning Heineken Cups. And, and again, Ulster were on target, okay, but a couple couple more blips perhaps this season, but still on target to qualify for the for the knockout stages. But not not just the fact that Ulster were winning, but you, I could say as a commentator, I watched every game and I was commentating on quite a few of them, is that incrementally Ulster were adding um, elements to their game week on week on week. I mean, we saw the, the Billy Burns uh, tactical kicking game coming in. We saw the development of, of many players, like Stuart McCluskey now has three or four added elements to his skill set. Marty Moore is a totally different rugby player to the one he played at Leinster. Yeah. You know, he's, he's winning balls at the breakdown. He's making tackles. I know, I, I watched him train a reasonable amount. And I know that he said to Marty Moore, your game involvement's got to go up here, Marty. Mm-hmm. And he expects him to do something every 30 to 40 seconds or mm-hmm. a minute. And it's the same with every single player. Dan Soper, Dan Soper is the magic potion in the middle of all that. Because he is the one who is... Mm-hmm. Who has, who has molded those skill sets around those players and building what they already have. And I think it's been, it's been a magnificent creation. Okay, maybe I'm, I am biased. and I'm maybe exaggerating ever so slightly. But I think you have to always refer back to that base point of the Paddy Jackson, Stuart Olding uh, era and, and what was happening around that with the chief executive and everything else that we know about. To get from there to here is pretty much sensational. Yeah, I, I completely agree with Mark, and I think um, what Dan McFarland did in the first season, I actually thought was going to make a rod for his own back, to be honest, because I, I think they were much more successful than everybody thought they were going to be. And when, when, when a team is successful, then suddenly the expectation is raised, and a team has to do that again. 
or yeah. it's been seen, or it, see, it seems like it seems like they've taken a dip. So I think they overachieved in, in their first year, which then was going to cause them problems this season. But they have kicked on. John yeah. Cooney has been a revelation; just gets better and better. Uh, the combination that, that that he's got now with with Billy Burns has been working perfectly as well. And to be honest, this um, this lockdown and coronavirus came just at the wrong time for Ulster because they were on the upward on the upward spiral. I fully expected them to 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 go to the quarterfinal and give a really good account of themselves. I'm not sure if they would would have won or not away away from away from home, but certainly domestically, what what they what they have done is. I mean, where they've come from, as Mark said, from that dark period. Yeah. The one thing pe- that people always said to me and kept saying to me was the atmosphere at the Kingspan Stadium at Ravenhill, it's really, really bad. The crowd's gone down. There's no atmosphere at the match. And I said, well, there's one way that you improve an atmosphere at a match. And there's only one way that you'll improve an atmosphere at a match, apart from playing music, getting a band in, making a great spectator experience and, and all of that. The team has to play well and the team has to start winning. And if the team starts winning, the atmosphere will get better. And that's exactly what's happened, especially this season. I think yeah. the atmosphere's been so much better at the games because the team's winning and the team's, and the team's playing well. And I agree with Mark, the backroom team have, have to take a lot of credit uh, for that as well. But I think they've created a, a, the environment, obviously, that they've created within the team. Talking to the players, they all seem to be buzzing and they seem to be really, really, really enjoying it. So yeah, I think yeah. if the players are enjoying it, they're enjoying playing for the coaching staff and they're winning, then that rubs off on the terraces as yeah. well. And the whole you, you get you get a good package all around. Yeah. Yeah. Just to add to that, just from maybe from more of a technical standpoint, when you watch Ulster and the tries they score, for me now as well, you know, in terms of adding those layers that I'm talking about, you look at the number of different ways Ulster have now to score tries. Mm-hmm. It, 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 you know, it, it's, it's, it's broadening all the time. You've yeah. got an example. You've now got Stuart McCluskey grubbering off both feet. Who would ever have guessed? Eh? You know, I'm yeah, sure he could I do it. But you know, it's, it's little things like that you're, you're seeing, not just the, 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 the magnificent accuracy of the cross-kicking of, of Billy Burns and, and, the, and the work of John Cooney, but it, it's, this, it's the layering. And, and, and Dan McFarland... He's fast tracking in a sense, but he's also taking his time in a sense as well, making sure that he doesn't add another layer until that layer is ready to be yeah. put into place. Yeah, yeah. It's it's been uh, having spoken to uh, some of the guys and done interviews with them. You can just tell the atmosphere around Ulster is completely different under McFarland, and almost out of necessity, a, a few players have moved on, and this new, the old guard have, have moved on, and it was sad to see those guys go, because they're Ulster Rugby legends, but we've now got a spine of a team coming through of young guys who will go on to play for Ireland. You've got Tom O'Toole, who's been a, a fantastic, he's deputised extremely well for Marty Moore, who's been a revelation himself, as you're saying, and uh, you've got guys throughout the team, like James Hume, Mike uh, Lowry as well those guys will form the basis of this Ulster team for, for years to come so I think I know you guys are, are very positive about it and I think for just from a fan's perspective as well I think we can be very positive the number of young guys even coming through the academy as well um, you look at some of the names there's Stuart Moore and there's uh, Nathan Duke has been playing well as well and there are so many other guys uh, coming through I, th- I think we can be positive and it might be a three year project but I think Ulster, Ulster are on their way. They've got that mix of 
that, that very important blend of youth and experience now. So, yeah, it's good. It, it's good to be positive about Ulster again, because as, as, as you say, uh, it, we went through a bit of a dark patch. And you mentioned so the, the, key, the, the key. The key as well is going to be the academy is yeah. going to be absolutely crucial and key. Leinster are so successful, yes, because they've got a massive pool of players to pick from, but they're successful because of the conveyor belt coming yeah. out of their academy. And it's important that Ulster continue to invest and improve their academy. And we, yeah. we produce back after back after back out of the academy, but we're going to have to start producing forward after forward after yeah. forward out of, out, of, out of the academy. And that's going to be the real challenge, I think, over the, over the years to come. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I went up to watch the Leinster A team against Ulster at Belmont there. Um, it was terrifying. It was terrifying. They scored 55 or 60 points and Ulster didn't play that badly. Ryan Baird played that day. What a rugby player he is. But just across the board, that was their fourth string team. Mm-hmm. Goodness, for heaven's sake, give me a break. Dan McFarlane was there. I actually watched a bit of the game with him behind the post for just yet. It's good. What do you do against this? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I said on Twitter recently, I said, I wonder would they St. Michael's old boys finish in the the uh, knockout stages of the Pro 14. You, 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 you can put together a really good some first team of yeah, just St. Michael's old boys, honestly. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I know it's crazy. It's crazy. They, they, I mean, they I, I've never looked at it closely enough, but I, I'm assuming that Leinster Rugby are investing in in St. Michael's and schools like it. Um, in, somebody in, somebody in told me the point, but I can't reveal it. Yeah, so uh, whereas here our, 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 yeah, our school system's different, so perhaps Ulster Rugby can't invest in the schools. But I know they're trying with the schools, and that's going to be key: is getting into the schools and working yeah. with the schools and bringing these young young players through. But I think there's a significant amount of investment yeah. um, going, in, going into the, the the schools down 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 in Dublin. So can, yeah. can we re- can we reveal the the amount? Or, no, we can't. We can't. Yeah. <laughs> I don't reveal my source, but let's just say it's a lot of money. Yeah. <laughs> well, it has worked yes, extremely. It it's worked so well for them. They, as you say, they have this conveyor belt of players coming through. Historically, I suppose Ulster have relied on the top two or three schools. You've got Instamethody, uh, Campbell, you've got BRA as well. Uh, increasingly, there's other teams. Ballymena have become a bit of a rugby powerhouse as well. Um, and they, weren't, they weren't the top teams this year. Not the top teams this year. I knew. I felt absolutely <laughs> gutted. I felt absolutely <laughs> gutted uh, for, for, for the teams that couldn't play in the, in the Skills Cup final. But it's good that it's becoming a bit more diverse in terms of where we get talent from. We've relied heavily on uh, guys coming up from Leinster. And uh, that's always been part of... I mean, that's part of the modern game, I suppose. But uh, uh, you have to rely on... On, on bringing top players in, uh, guys who are ambitious, likes of Marty Moore and Jack McGrath joining from Leinster, Jordy Murphy, um, and, and sorry, Ian Madigan. Yeah, Ian Madigan as well. Who mm-hmm. I think is a, he, he sort of a split split opinion in some ways. I think he's a fantastic signing. I think he's a he's a top quality player, and you need guys of that quality to provide you with depth. That you can play across uh, a number of positions in the back line. So I think he's a. He's a great signing. Um, I agree with Stephen, though. I think we need a, a few mammoths in yeah. there to, to mm-hmm. assist. Yeah. Uh, the likes of uh, Tom O'Toole's a good carrier. Marshall Cootsie, obviously, Ian mm-hmm. Anderson. Just need a few. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, they're hard to come by. And I suppose, uh, as, as you're mentioning earlier, that, that there are a number of uh, backs Ulster have produced, but we have, we have struggled to produce uh, that, that many forwards. There, mm-hmm. there are a couple of uh, exceptions to that. But, but generally... We've had to bring in our forge from elsewhere. But 
we're, we're just about to run out of time. So um, I think that was a really interesting discussion. And I just want to thank you so much for your time. You're talking earlier about guys who uh, helped you out in your, in your careers. Um, I, I'm at the very outset of doing this uh, and uh, trying to get into it a bit more. So I just want to thank you so much for taking the time to, to speak to me. It's, it's hugely appreciated and I really enjoyed that. I think listeners will, will love listening to it as well. So, and I hope you're, you both keep well and, and, uh, and don't get driven too stir crazy by being indoors all the time. Let's hope there's a, a shaft of light at the other side of the lockdown. Yeah. Yes, let's hope we're not locked down for too much longer. There's only so much longer I can spend working at home when I yeah. think of a lot of the sporting events that I'm meant to be going I know. to. I know. <laughs> an expensive extension. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, I need to go to a few more so I can extend even further out the back here. <laughs> <laughs> you need to add that to your sign-offs now, and not just say you're, you're reporting from home. You're reporting from that expensive extension. I might, I might do a couple of those for Twitter. <laughs> well, guys, thank you so much for your time, and it was a real pleasure speaking to you. Okay, Peter. Thanks a lot. Okay, guys. Okay. Bye. 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 CJ Stander, look at that, 14 carries in this game already. He came into this match with over 300 to his name this season. He's been outstanding. Yeah, and you see every carry he 